This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi everyone! What a uh, an interesting morning thus far. If uh, if you're tuning in live, you'll notice Will is not here. He's in Orlando for a conference, and the internet is no bueno. So, just stuck with uh, Jamie and I today. Yeah, one one of the real downsides of staying in a hotel is just terrible uh, Wi-Fi. Apparently, in Orlando, it's amazing hotels haven't fixed that, but it is pretty consistent. Um, some have gotten better, but a lot of them still have pretty bad Wi-Fi. <laughs> I was in New York last week for a conference and I couldn't get above five megabytes a second. And like doing Zoom with that was terrible. I'm sitting in midtown Manhattan and can't get good internet. Yeah, I'd say I'm surprised, but <laughs> I'm not. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe fewer Zoom calls is a better thing in life. <laughs> Yeah, it is something about going to an in-person conference and still doing Zoom calls. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, typically uh, we'd we'd hop in with a couple stories, but I think uh, with with Will out, we don't have the ability to pop up some news feeds. But we've got a couple topics today: um, institutional investment in short-term rentals, as well as investor returns and how they've shaped up over the past couple of years with the housing market fluctuating as, as high as it has with short-term rentals fluctuating as high as it has. Um, what, uh, let, let's start there and we can work over into institutional. Yeah. So there was a great, uh, article in the wall street journal last week, uh, where we were quoted in sort of, uh, breaking down the risks of investing in short-term rentals and some, and really, I wouldn't say horror stories, but some of the examples of where it could go wrong uh, that got, I know, uh, lit up my feet a lot with people. And really, what I thought was most interesting was just how real it seemed and sort of took the unvarnished look at investing in short-term rentals and that it's not always the, and the the great end story of passive investment and sort of make fifteen uh, percent annual returns that sometimes you hear at the at the at the investor conferences. Yeah, you, you can't just close your eyes and and throw a line out anymore. Those days yeah. are are gone. What's driving to those factors of uh, of when it really was just buy a house, put it on Verbo and Airbnb, and you'll make money. What are the the biggest factors in yeah. the last few years? So it when you invest in real estate, and there's sort of two ways to make money, right? There's there's the appreciation of the investment, 
like, and especially at home, like how much is that home going to appreciate in value over the time that you hold it? And over the past and decade, sort of since the housing crisis and housing crisis was a great example of home values don't always go up. And sometimes you can see massive corrections uh, in the value of everyone's home. And I think there is conventional wisdom that and home values just keep going up and you're not going to sort of get burned on the appreciation side. Uh, and we've seen sort of a similar run up now since 2012 to really just this past month where home values just continued to appreciate, uh, whether it's in sort of vacation rental markets or just in large MSAs. And according to Zillow, according to Redfin, this past month was the first month of month over month declines in home values uh, in in 10 years. So that is sort of a cautionary tale, tale. There was a big run up in home values during the pandemic and uh, and people wanted more space. They We saw a lot of uh, household formations is what <laughs> the economists call it, of uh, maybe you're living with roommates and you all decide that it's time to go your separate ways. And now you've got three people uh, getting a place instead of just everyone sort of crowded into one. And that's really put a crunch on the available supply and, and pushed values up over the past really two or three years pretty substantially. And then you've got on the flip side, you've got rates, mortgage rates that as they continue to take higher home values naturally will go down because you're paying the same mortgage a month uh, for for uh, less value. Yeah, exactly. So as mortgage rates, shoot, they've probably doubled since I bought my house two or three years ago. Yeah, if not higher. So now, if, you, if you got less than three, it's it's over six today. So it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I got less than three. So no, you never and that's only, that <laughs> Yeah, I'm, it's free money. Can never sell this house. <laughs> Right. Um, wait, then, wait. Is, is that the home I own? The, it is the home you own. Right. I haven't signed the deed over yet. Right. I'm, I'm waiting for a double or nothing yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it won't be the Auburn Georgia game this year, Jamie, okay. uh, unless you give me like a 40 point spread. <laughs> um, I, I might take that. <laughs> I might too, actually. Maybe I'll, I'll not do it on that 50 points. Um, but. The flip side is also how many properties have rushed into short-term rentals where the available supply in a market has gone up so much, demand isn't keeping up with it, which then means people are dropping rates to try and get bookings, which means lower occupancy, lower ADR, and... Then when you're doing your underwriting from what you wrote, underwrote it for, when you purchased the home, now you're nowhere near it. And you know, that 15% cap rate is down to single digits or yeah. single digits. Yeah. That, yeah. That is the other side of the equation. Like how much can it cash flow for you? And is it going to earn you profits for owning and operating that property? And if you bought in 2020, 2021, that appears that it's going to be in the peak for, for revenue, revenue potential. Uh, we've now, if you look at revenue on a trailing 12 month basis, we're still slightly up versus last year, up about six and a half percent. But we've seen now four consecutive months 
where average revenue per available listing has been down year over year. Uh, and that's a big function of occupancy. So past really five or six months, occupancy has been down year over year. 2021 was and probably will be the highest occupancies the industry hits. And it could be for, for decades that uh, 2021 will sort of be that higher watermark. So if you underwrote your investment, assuming that 2021 was going to last forever, uh, that there uh, that may introduce some risk into your uh, expected returns. Uh, and we're already seeing some major cracks out there in certain markets, both on home values and on the appreciation side. So like where the U.S. is up six and a half percent, there's markets, especially these are like, I feel like pandemic darlings of investment opportunities of like every broken arrow at Oklahoma, broken bow lake. <laughs> yep. Uh, down, uh, 5% on revenues right now, but then you get to some others like Joshua tree down 14% Poconos down 15%, uh, big bear revenue is down 30%. There's something in common with all three of those. And they're within like two hours drive of a major U S city where people were very frequently evacuating the lockdowns or pandemics. Um, no surprise yeah. that those are down. Right. And and yeah, lower Hudson Valley down 10%, like short drive from New York, Catskills area. Yeah. Uh, these are everywhere, that, at least my friends that were in the city in New York, that's, that's where they were going for weeks on a time. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I can tell you that most of them... <laughs> Weren't up in the Catskills this summer. They were in Greece or Italy or or somewhere else, uh, probably taking an international trip. Uh, yeah, two two things. We we've got some international viewers, and we also have hotel viewers. Mm -hmm. um, from an international standpoint, I, I'm not too familiar with how prices are, but I know the one thing that's causing wreaking havoc is energy prices, yep. where they're getting some some energy bills are as high as mortgages. And there's just no way to have ever been able to underwrite that. Um, and it's going to cause some issues. And then during the pandemic, hotel ADRs were down. Obviously, occupancies were really low. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the, the, the inverse story of short-term rentals. It, the worst time to buy a short-term rental is when everyone wanted one, which is in 2020, 2021. Yep. And the best time to buy a hotel was then. Now hotel rates, uh, you can tell better than me, but I would guess are recovering in a good way. Um, occupancies probably, maybe not at par to 2019, but probably pretty close. So it would have been a heck of an investment to buy a hotel. <laughs> yeah, except that you by owning it, you're probably losing money every month. And so that, that was the calculus of, I could sure. buy that property, but for the next probably year, it's going to be cash flow negative. Yep. So do I, and maybe I get a and great appreciation play, but I've got to underwrite that, that first year. And in your sort of DCF analysis, you're discounting those cash flows and it's, you're going to be sort of, you have the holding cost of, of that property. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of people go in and renovate and facelift and all that would have been absolute perfect time. 
so I'm, I'm curious how many hotels actually did that and were smart about the, the time uh, there. The And to your energy costs one, I've been hearing, I'm not sure if you've heard it, but uh, of sort of escaping the UK, uh, escape, escaping sort of Northern Europe and, and heading south for the winter uh, where uh, maybe not, might not have to spend as much on energy costs and you may be able to rent out a, a home or condo in, in uh, Southern Europe for the cost that, that your heating bill would have been staying in the UK. <laughs> yeah, probably. I haven't heard of that yet, but uh, it hasn't started getting cold yet. And those, I'm sure the sticker price of the first few uh, winter bills in mm-hmm. Northern Europe might might quickly uh, get people out of Norway or Sweden. <laughs> um, so another trend that it follows this same concept is uh, same talking point is institutional investment. And it seems just about every week, there's a new company that launches a new fund that's buying up vacation rentals and gonna either fractionalize them for people that want to invest as little as $5,000. Or it's a Wall Street fund that has $100 million and they're deploying it through Avant Stay or through Picasso or somebody. Um, what are you seeing on the institutional side? And then we'll get into some of the ramifications afterwards. Yeah, one is just, and it, it's definitely happening. Uh, there's quite a few examples. A lot of them are are leveraging our data uh, to uh, sort of figure out their investment strategy, which which markets are going to see continued revenue growth, which markets is supply not I'm really uh, exploded yet, and that it can um, be a good sort of medium to long term uh, investment. Uh, the the uh, what one of the things I think is um, really interesting there is most of them now are sort of concentrating in certain areas where what sort of pre-pandemic, a lot of the inter- institutional side was going into the major cities uh, on the sort of either rental arbitrage or um, buying up buildings and and wanting to build the brand and make sure they were in every major city around the U.S. and in um, Western Europe. Now what I've seen is they're very much trying to focus on different types of markets, uh, states, um, regional sort of dominance, where they can maybe gain some efficiencies by operating in those areas. Yeah, I mean, that's typically what you'll see in any line of businesses there's groups that go for mass market and then there's groups that go for specialized. And we are somewhat in a specialized area, but I mean, you've got groups like Avant Stay that are in dozens of markets that are, that also have a, a PropCo fund that are deploying capital. The, there's a lot of pros to doing it. I, I've long been a fan of the owner operator model, the people that own five to 10 properties, operate them themselves are the ones that make the most money because there's no building, right? Mm-hmm. It makes sense. When you shift from, you know, John Smith that owns five to John Wall Street that owns a thousand, that, sh- that changes a lot of things in local communities. Um, 
mostly for the bad. <laughs> uh, short term rentals are already a hot button issue from a regulatory standpoint. And look no further than what happened with Picasso already in Tahoe and in Palm Springs, where they started buying up some levels of density of homes. Mm -hmm. And the local town said, nope, you're out. You're not even allowed to own here anymore. I don't know how that's legal. Um, it, it certainly isn't in states that I've lived in, but in California, I guess they can do some stuff like that. Um, but that's the writings on the wall already. And if these institutional investors are thinking, yeah, we're going to go buy a thousand, you know, properties in Blue Ridge, Georgia, or in Hill country, Texas. These cities are going to push back. The local communities are going to absolutely have a, have a go at, at the, the regulations and not allow that to happen because it's one thing to say short-term rentals affect the fabric of your community, but most short-term rentals today are owned by individuals that it's their second home. Yeah. Uh, there are very few today that are institutionally owned and, and purely there to, to pump profits. When that calculus changes, cities, neighborhoods, communities are really going to push back. Yeah, and that's I'm, how I've seen it is short-term rentals has been used as the boogeyman for the past few years in terms of the housing crisis, right? There's, I mean, it's more than likely impacting on the margin, but there's lots of other sort of systematic issues in terms of a lack of supply that have nothing to do with short-term rentals sort of causing housing problems in a lot of these communities around the country. But when you turn sort of the ownership institutional, and instead of having it being John Smith as sort of the face of the investor, then it's some Wall Street firm that's uh, uh, you can sort of point to. And, and these are the companies that are profiteering off uh, the lack of housing in our, in our market. Then it becomes something that uh, a lot more people can rally against uh, and ma makes it and can make the calculus much harder for the existing operators in that market where, and that was in the Wall Street Journal article, like one of the biggest sort of risks outside of the investment thesis is that just regulation comes in and makes your investment that you made sort of uh, worthless because it, it, you can't use it for the use case that you had coming into it. Yeah, 100%. The, the good news is if that happens, there's still homes and they can either be sold or flipped to long-term rentals. So it's not a all or nothing venture capital investing in an early stage startup kind of bet. Um, you're you're betting on the upside and the downside is you you get out of it for par of what you purchased it for. Um, but what that does to the reputation of short-term rentals of people that do own a second home and do love to, you know, winter in Florida or summer in, you know, Maine, it, it hurts the reputation of short-term rentals. What are you seeing? Cause all of this kind of plays into Airbnb's growth potential. Um, what do you see the trajectory of listings and where does it flatline? Because obviously listings are going up. They had a huge supply push for throughout the pandemic. 
Yep. But at some point, what level do you think it, it plateaus and are we close to it? Yeah. And we look at, and one of my favorite metrics is looking at the number of new listings added over the previous month. Uh, we, for the past five months, have been at sort of record levels of net new listings, and that has not slowed at all yet. So uh, given that we're still record revenues for the industries coming off of sort of the record occupancies, ADRs are still positive. Uh, we're not seeing the slowdown yet in new investment. You would expect that given the rise in interest rates that we were talking about earlier, uh, the sort of plateauing revenues that you just can't get the returns on new investment that you could have gotten maybe a year, year and a half ago. Uh, and and uh, though I do think there are still lots of great investments out there, uh, there's still ways to deploy money into the sector, but you've got to get comfortable that 2018, 2019 levels of revenue and occupancy are going to be, and if it went down to those levels, that that investment would still uh, be a good decision. Uh, and even at that levels, there's still lots of great opportunities, and especially if we see housing prices turn, uh, that could change the calculus of making those income streams less costly to get. But it's it's probably next year that we sort of start to plateau. We're forecasting only like five or 6% gains and in, in supply growth and total listing counts next year. And that's coming off of 22% growth this year. So we do expect the growth rate to slow substantially. And at what point does it plateau or does it not plateau? Because at, at those levels, it's just converting travelers from hotels into short-term rentals. Yeah, I don't think it ever plateaus. I think there's so much tailwind behind sort of user adoption of, uh, yeah, more people shifting from short-term rentals to hotels, but also just more people that want to stay in short-term rentals, staying in short-term rentals more often and sort of uh, continuing the uh, sort of long-term shift we'd seen of people spending more on travel and less on other sort of goods and things that they maybe used to buy and spend their their incomes on. Interesting. Oh, some of those tailwinds could also be headwinds. I've seen a lot of articles lately of cleaning fee disasters. And <laughs> I paid more for my cleaning fee than I did like booking the place. Yeah, that, that was also on the front page of the Wall Street Journal this weekend. Yeah. Uh, cleaning fee disasters, yeah. What is the average cleaning fee in North America? It's like uh, 150 bucks. 150 bucks. And if and I did a deep dive into the cleaning fee data, actually pulling data for that article. And in reality, we haven't seen major increases in cleaning fees. Uh, people aren't used to cleaning fees. They're moving from hotels to short rentals. Yeah, and they were and staying in a short-term rental, maybe pre-pandemic, that was a one-bedroom condo in Boston that they paid $50 for their cleaning fee and then are renting a five-bedroom home in Destin and it's $400. Yeah. I'm like, what's going on with cleaning fees? It was like, well, take larger care. homes take longer to clean. And the big increase that we actually saw was in 2020, 2021, and the article got to it a bit, like 
guest expectations and Airbnb's expectations for cleanliness went up during the pandemic. I mean, I don't think that would surprise me. Labor costs are up. Inflation is up. Right. You know, ten dollars an hour. Yeah. So during 2021, the average cleaning fee went up 10%, which, and you think, all right, I'd, I'd pay a 20% more if I'm actually getting a, a cleaner uh, home. Um, and I do want it sanitized. And I, I do want to make sure, and we were in a health crisis for two years, like expectations of cleanliness did go up. And now we're in an environment of yeah, rising labor costs. And over the past year, cleaning fees were up 6%. And average wage for hospitality was up 7%, 8%. So, uh, and they're not sort of growing at a rate that's, that's really outpacing the rate of inflation or uh, the rate of sort of uh, time that would go into those cleans. So gut, gut feel here, how many short-term rental single owners or companies are using cleaning fees as a profit center? Uh, gut feel is half and that it should be more than half. Yeah. Every, everyone I know uses it. It's not, it's not much, Yep, maybe 10 bucks per clean or something. Um, but when I rented out my property, it was a very big profit center. <laughs> like you can make an extra night essentially in a cleaning fee. Um, and yes, you do pay cleaners, but at the same time, if you've got a longstanding relationship with the cleaners and they know they've got good, reliable work, you don't have to pay the cleaner $150 per turn. Uh, you get to keep the the spread. So, and uh, the other point there is, and, and we sort of, talk with people about using it as a tool, right? Like short-term rentals aren't hotels. Like you don't want one or two night stays. You don't want to be turning over the property uh, that often. And by keeping cleaning fees and high to a certain extent, that sort of encourages longer, longer stay bookings that uh, end up making that home more profitable or and profitable in general. Because if you're turning over every... <laughs> Every two days, like, and that's maybe not what you were, you were wanting getting into, into that. Yeah. I love the people that give you crap when you stay in a hotel. It's like, but guys, I'm, I'm only here for a night. Like in no way would I ever get a cheaper place than a hotel for one yeah. night just because of cleaning fee. If the average cleaning fee is 150 bucks. The average hotel ADR, you know, finger to the wind is probably 220, 225. Right. Um, directionally, right? Uh, <laughs> you can correct me. Um, so there's just no way that you're ever going to uh, have that that balance for a single night. And in, in oftentimes two nights, to your point. Um, but anywhere, anytime I'm staying somewhere three, four or longer, you're, you're crazy not to look at short-term rental. Right. And that, and that gets to the point in the consumer surveys that I've seen and looked at, it's you get to the nightly and how many nights someone's staying is a great predictor of whether they're going to choose a hotel or a short-term rental. If you get past that four or five night mark, 
then you want the kitchen, you want the separate living space, you want the additional amenities that go along with staying in a, a home or apartment uh, that you just don't get with a hotel. And and honestly, if I'm, and I was in New York for two nights last week, there's no way I was going to stay in a short-term rental for that quick of a turn when, and I was just using it as a bed to sleep in. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be more of a hassle to stay in short-term rentals. Like you've got the background checks, you've got to figure out the automated keypads and door pads and how to access the front door and the side door and the, you know, the, the entryway, like there's, it's a lot easier if you're there for a short time, just to walk to a hotel, give them your card and go up to your room. Um, but again, there, there's that, there's that trade-off. All right. Yeah. And that, that said, like there are, when I, cities that I travel to a lot, I've found short-term rentals that I love and that I want to stay in time after time. And then, and if you know the routine, you know how to get in, you know how to get out and then, and you sort of remove some of that risk. And, and also that's a lot of what some of these new brands I bring to the table too of, and you know, it's going to be easy to get in, check in, even if there isn't a front desk that their sort of app works. Um, I'm staying at a central, um, central property here in Denver. And I got in at almost midnight last night and it was super simple to get in and, and get situated. Yeah. Some of the urban multifamily ones, it's like, you have to have three different access code. <laughs> yeah. Main gate, there's the front door and then there's your apartment door and and that, that gets challenging, yeah. um, but we're, uh, we're running up on time. I got one last question for you for the non-institutional investors out there that are looking to maybe move their money out of the wild stock market and into real estate. What are the top two or three markets you would encourage them to look at? I won't maybe not going to name some markets because uh, I, I get asked that all the time and I, <laughs> I try to stay away, uh, but sort of types of markets I'm, I'm pushing towards uh, is sort of the second tier to sort of third tier uh, cities. Uh, so areas that uh, maybe didn't see the big pop during the pandemic, uh, but are now seeing I mean, as People are are going back to work. They're um, uh, uh, seeing a, a lot more uh, predictability and and wh where they want to go and sort of traveling a bit for business, but wanting to connect that to uh, maybe a weekend stay, four or five days. Uh, we're seeing really strong demand growth, uh, and and the, sort of those mid-sized cities are 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 outperforming uh, most. So. It's, it's, some names as an example, maybe not uh, <laughs> the uh, markets uh, in particular is like Southern around me and in Atlanta, like uh, Birmingham, Chattanooga, uh, Charleston, Savannah, areas like that, where uh, you've got uh, a decent um, sort of local base and then a um, lot of growth and, and bringing people in sort of a lot of in-ground migration, things like that. Yeah, well, we we made improvement this week from last or this month from last month because uh, last month you gave the first half. You didn't get into some examples of cities. <laughs> I look forward to next month where you're like, put all your money in this market. <laughs> <laughs>
I'll ask that question every week to okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, enjoy your time at uh, Central and in, in Denver, um, and we'll chat with you at, uh, next time. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you.